Welcome again to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. Good to be with you again. Uh, my wife and I were gone uh, all of last week on some vacation to see our son and his family in Scotland. They have been missionaries there for right at five years now, so we enjoyed our visit there, especially to see our precious five grandkids that we don't get to see quite as often as our other six that live here in the States. But anyway, good to be back with you, and uh, we did record an extra podcast and sent it out this past Saturday, which is a little bit unusual, the timing, but I wanted to get caught back up on our podcast, try to do one per week. And so now today, uh, we're back uh, in our study of the book of Revelation in chapter number two. So if you have your Bibles, you can be turning there as we're continuing a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of this final book, climactic, apocalyptic book uh, called the book of Revelation. Uh, We finished through verse uh, 17 of chapter 2 in the last podcast we sent out, and we're in the midst of studying these seven churches. And just by way of a quick review, remember these are seven literal churches that existed in the uh, first century, at the end of the first century, when John the Apostle uh, writes this book as Christ comes to him in person as he's banished to the island of Patmos uh, by the Roman government. The Roman government, the Roman Empire was ruling the world at that time. And John, for his faith in Jesus, his testimony, his preaching, his stand for the truth, was banished as a punishment to this little island. And there the Lord came to him as an old man. He's probably around 80 to 90 years old. He's not going to live much longer after this, but the Lord gives him this amazing final book Uh, of the Bible, and he writes it down by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's writing to these seven churches, to the angel of each of the churches, which we think represents the pastor, the messenger of each church. And then they would, of course, read it. It would have an effect on their church in particular, but all the churches, not only the seven that received the book of Revelation, probably one received it first, and copies were then made and given to the others, and then copies would be continued throughout the uh, first few centuries of all these New Testament books. That's how we have so much uh, manuscript evidence to back up the validity, the authenticity of the New Testament manuscripts, the New Testament itself. Now, today I'm going to pick up in verse 18. We're going to go to our fourth church. We've covered Ephesus, we've covered Smyrna, we've covered Pergamos, and now we're going to cover the church at Thyatira. Now, let me add this one other dimension I've been bringing up, and I'll try to remember to bring it up at least at the end of our look at each of these churches, and that is that we think there's an historical relevance to each of these seven churches. We think, in other words, that each of the seven, chronologically in order, seems to at least picture symbolically and and in, in some way preview the events that would take place in the seven periods of church history. With that being the case, we saw Ephesus was the was the infant church period from 30 A.D. or so to 100 A.D., uh, the early New Testament church period. Uh, the second church, Smyrna, pictured from 100 A.D. to right at 325 when a big event changed a lot of things that happened. And then the church at uh, Pergamos we just finished, uh, it pictured the church 
uh, period from 325 to about 500. That's when that big change from Constantine, uh, where he made so-called Christianity the state religion, instead of persecuting Christians to death as they were doing in the first three centuries, uh, Constantine thought he can kind of, uh, if he can't beat him, join him type of thing. And he made Christianity, or what he felt was Christianity, the state religion. But it was really a disaster. It was not meant to be. He united the church and the state, making the state force people uh, to follow a certain kind of Christianity. And we know, living in uh, the religious freedom we enjoy here in America, uh, thankfully that it's a mistake. It's totally uh, against God's plan to force anyone to believe anything. You have to believe by your own volition, your own will and choice. So now we go to the fourth church, and it's the longest account given of the seven churches, and, and it kind of fits in with a model that I'm going to bring up that I think it also pictures the longest period in church history, uh, the worst period in church history, at least historically, as we're looking back for sure. Uh, the period from 500 A.D. to right at 1500 A.D., a thousand years, a whole millennium, is going to be pictured. And it's going to be referred to, it is referred to, uh, in, in historical writings. If you read and watch any history and so on, you'll hear it called the Middle Ages. It's best called the Dark Ages. And it's a period of time when Roman Catholicism, the false, false so-called Christian a system called Roman Catholicism dominated the world uh, in an oppressive manner where popes reigned like uh, dictators, like Caesars that they replaced. And they put most of, of course, all of Europe and some of other places uh, in other parts of the world, but especially all of Europe under the the, the foot, under the the domain, the tyranny of, of its uh doctrines, of its dogmas, of its sacraments, of its control. And we're going to see that brought out. But, <coughs> excuse me, the first thing I want to do is just read the text and get into the direct application, or, or interpretation, pardon me, of what the Lord said to this church. And then uh, at the end, I'll try to bring out some things that I think do apply to the uh, period of time known as the Dark Ages. But let's read it together. It's the longest section. I'll read it in, in its entirety. Beginning in verse 18, and under the church, or angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and patience, and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce uh, my servants to commit fornication and to uh, eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you, uh, I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already, uh, you have already hold fast till I come. 
And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I have received uh, of my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, as we go back through what the Lord wrote and said to these uh, believers uh, in the church at Thyatira, we see something very common, and it's a very important to remember, and that is that every church uh, is imperfect, and every church has, uh, we might say, two parts. Uh, a part that uh, we can maybe describe as, as uh, carnal, worldly, uh, not committed, not devoted, even as much as we can say, I'm sure, that some aren't even converted, that are parts of every church. And this is the negative side of this presentation to Thyatira. This is what the Lord's going to bring a lot of, uh, say a lot about. But then thankfully, he also then turns to the good remnant, the other part of, of every church. And I think every church has uh, both of these segments. You just pray and, and, and serve and work and, and hope the Lord will bless your church that it has a greater majority of godly, devoted, committed Christian people and not the the apathetic, complacent, kind of lacking devotion uh, type people, uh, which are in every church. You just hope they're not the majority. And as, as we look at this church, notice how the Lord addresses this church at Thyatira. And he starts right out of the gate uh, with, with judgment. He's very angry at this church. And I'm going to talk about the picture of that being this thousand-year dark ages later, but it's it's telling that it starts right out. This is the 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 harshest the Lord is in any of the seven churches. Now he he's harsh on five out of the seven for sure. And he's going to be very harsh with the last church, which I think pictures our present uh, age or the last age of church history, which I think we're in right now, the Laodicean church period. But in this reference to Thyatira, look how he starts out. These things saith the Son of God, Jesus Christ, he's putting his authority behind these words, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Remember this description, this appearance we saw in chapter 1? Fire and brass speak of judgment. Jesus isn't the gentle Lamb of God who first came to die for the sins of the world and rise from the dead. Now he's appearing to John, and he wants to let this church see him as this fiery judge who is angry at many of the things they're doing. Now, again, as always, we see that phrase, I know thy works, to all seven churches he says that. Uh, but their works are going to have something very uh, interesting to describe them uh, that's overly about works. Notice, I know that works in charity, uh, and I think this could apply, of course, to some of the good elements that we'll refer to later in the text here. Uh, he says, in service and faith and thy patience, uh, which are all good things. We're not negating that or not undermining the good things that the church was doing there, or at least a portion of the church was. But then he says this statement that's kind of telling. He says, and thy works. He says the, the works again, and the last to be more than the first. That's a really kind of perplexing thought. He says, what does he mean by the last? Well, apparently the last works, because the works, he, works are brought up in the beginning of the verse, the end of the verse. So it appears to mean the last works are more than the first. And because he uses this phrase, I know thy works to all seven churches, 
I'd have to believe the first reference to the works of the church there at Thyatira is a positive thing, but the last mention is a negative thing. In other words, this church was very works-oriented. Let me, let me rephrase that to say it's very religious. Uh, it began to have a lot of religious trappings, a lot of do's and don'ts, a lot of routines, a lot of dogmas. We might even call it sacraments as will be developed later in this system, but uh, a, lot of, a lot of things that it was busy doing, but it was not uh, about truth and it wasn't doing things that God ordained them to do. Because then he goes right into, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Now, the first thing he brings up against them uh, is, again, a reference to the Old Testament. This time he's going to use the story of Jezebel. Remember, Jezebel was the wicked uh, Gentile wife of Ahab, king of Israel. And so he says, thou sufferest or allows uh, that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, uh, there's a lot of debate. We can't be 100% sure if there was literally a woman in that church named Jezebel. Probably not. Uh, what what uh, family would name their uh, daughter Jezebel after knowing at least what the Old Testament said about this wicked woman in uh, the, the book of uh, First Kings or so? Uh, <clears throat> With that in mind, though, she was, I think, called a Jezebel because of the likeness and the affiliation similarities to that Old Testament woman. Uh, remember how Jezebel really ran the show behind the scenes. Her husband Ahab was a weak man, and she controlled him. And evidently, this woman's taking control. Uh, you, you suffer, you allow this woman to have this kind of dominance, even calling herself a prophetess. What does it mean by a prophetess? One who speaks for God, you know, a prophet. Now, this is the female version of that, female uh, pronunciation for a woman, prophetess. I have to tell you, uh, even though we do see the word prophetess mentioned a few times in the Old Testament, uh, there was a woman named Deborah, uh, a woman named Huldah in the book of Isaiah, that's a very rare situation. And we know the Bible teaches male leadership, uh, men leading in the Old Testament, whether it was in the priesthood, whether it was in the government, and also in the New Testament. There is no female apostles. There is no female pastors. Uh, according to the requirements for a bishop or an overseer or a pastor or an elder, uh, he had to be the husband of one wife. That makes it very clear male leadership. And Paul said, I suffer not a woman to teach or to usurp authority over the man. So here we have a woman out of place uh, and she's leading uh, this church or, or, or at least influencing this church for evil. Uh, she's influencing them to teach and to seduce my servants. So she's kind of leading in the teaching. Uh, it's, it's sad that many so-called Christian uh, denominations and individual church movements are being led by women. It was never God's will. Women shouldn't be pastoring. Women shouldn't lead church movements. And that would uh, eliminate much of the problem of the false churches today if people would just uh, see the scripture on that clearly, would not support and continue to go to churches that, that have women leadership where they're not supposed to be. And so it says uh, she was teaching and seducing uh, misleading, like the word seduce, we, we use it in a, in a term to, to mean physical adultery, sexual sin. Here it's a, it's a spiritual uh, term 
uh, to mean spiritual adultery. And God uses that a lot in the Old Testament. He accuses Israel of being spiritually unfaithful to him, but uses very physical terminology like adultery and, and so forth, fornication and so on. Uh, and even that word's used here, seduce my servants to commit fornication. Now, this fornication in verse 20 could have been literal. Uh, there was sexual sin in a lot of these churches, as there is even to this very day, sexual scandals in many churches. It's a, trage a tragedy. Uh, it's a disgrace and an obscenity. Uh, and it's hurt the cause of Christ. Uh, and uh, if you're in a, in a, in a church that, that does not deal with sin and, and has uh, shady things going on. You need to get out of that church because those kind of churches are not of God. They, they have these kind of elements in them and they're controlling people to a, a, a wrong conclusion. Uh, anyway, and he says that to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, again, we think that could be literal, but it could be the actual idea of just various forms of idolatry. There's a lot of idolatry even within Christian churches, worshiping things, giving allegiance to things, uh, putting too much uh, time and, and importance on things that are not biblical. One of my preacher friends used to say about churches, we need to make the main things the main things. And I think he's right. Uh, make doctrine and practice as revealed in the Word of God the main thing. Let's not go off onto a lot of man-made things and, and things that were added later by men. They might sound good and they might have some relevance, but uh, I'll tell you, when you get off the Word of God and get out of, out of what the Bible says the church ought to be doing, you're going to always run into problems. And notice he goes on to say, verse 21, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. This woman is brazen. Uh, whoever this woman is, it could mean, mean just a segment of the church that he's calling a Jezebel. It could be a whole portion of the church. We're not sure if that's just one lady and an, and an actual literal woman. could be a portion of the church that is causing this to happen. And he says, uh, here's his judgment. She would not repent. Uh, he gave her time to repent. Evidently, maybe some people, the good segment of the church was was uh, uh, telling her or her, this segment of the church, these people in the church, women leadership, whoever it was, you need to repent. You need to stop this. You need to get out of the position you're in. You need to uh, come before the church and, 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 and repudiate, repent of that. But he says uh, they she wouldn't do it. So behold, here's his judgment. Behold, here's what always happens. If you don't listen to what God says, there's going to be consequences. Behold, I will cast her into a bed and then the commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. You know, we talked about uh, there's maybe a, a cliche in, in our English language that was developed from this. You know, you make your bed, you lie in it. It means you pay the price. You, you suffer the consequences of your actions. And it's kind of like the Lord saying that. He's using a lot of uh, symbolic language of fornication and adultery and seducing, as we saw. He says, them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. This could be literal adultery. Again, we're not sure if there was literal sexual sin going on with a particular woman or group of women in that church. That's possible. It also could be sim simply a symbolic thing about spiritual unfaithfulness to God causing people to, through idolatry and, and through uh, uh, getting their eyes off, off the Lord and off what they should be doing, they're, they're going into all kinds of religious sin, uh, sacraments and, and man-made uh, additions to the church and church doctrine that were never made to be part of the Lord's work. He said, I'm going I'm to cast her into great tribulation. Uh, I'll get to that later. The word tribulation means, of course, suffering and hardship and trial. 
But the way he calls it great tribulation may have an indication of the end times. It may be a symbolism of the final great tribulation that this book of Revelation will go into great detail and talk about. We'll get to that a little later. And he says, I will kill her children with death. Wow. I told you the Lord is very harsh against this church. I'm going to kill her with death and all the churches shall know. This is a great a truth. He says, I want everybody to learn from this church at Thyatira what I'm going to do to her and her children. Now, again, the reason the book of Revelation is difficult, we cannot for sure guarantee that these were literal children, perhaps born uh, from the adultery that was being committed, fornication in that church. We do have at least the story of David and Bathsheba to know that in, in at least one case we see where God took the, a child's life you say, well, I can't understand that. Well, we leave that to God. God had a reason for that. Uh, and, and, you know, it's just like we, we know that millions of babies have been aborted in the womb. And, and even millions have, have died of stillbirths and miscarriages. And you say, why has God allowed that? Well, God has a purpose behind all things. And the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. And, and we don't understand why children die. We could only say this. There's some silver lining to that whole scenario. Uh, those children go right to be with the Lord, to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. We think that's the case with every child under an age of accountability. They go right to heaven. And so even if uh, God killed these children as a judgment on what was happening in that church or let them die of some disease, you know, hey, uh, who are we to judge God? Uh, see, humility says God is sovereign. He is Lord. He's in control of everything, and we're not. And so I'm not going to judge God. I'm not going to question what he does. Who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? Uh, Paul would write at the end of Romans 11. What a great thought. Uh, who are we, little peons in this world, to judge the great and almighty God of the universe? Uh, his ways are past our ways, are past finding out. So going on, uh, he says, I want all the churches to know. Notice what they need to know and learn from this church. That I am he that searcheth the reins. What are the reins? Well, to search is to try. God searches. It means he searches your heart. He searches and judges you, your actions, your thoughts, your words. The reins is an interesting translation of the King James. We know what reins are, right? A horse has reins. You have a horse's reins, and it turns a horse the direction you want him to go. Well, our reins are our, are our will. It's our choices. It's our decision-making process and heart. So searching the reins and hearts means the, the mind and the heart the decision processes, our, our judgments that we make. He's going to judge us for all those. He said, I'm going to search you. I'm going to search that part of you. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Wow, what a promise. Boy, that's a, that has a two-edged two, uh, sword to it, two sides to that thought. In one respect for the wicked, remember, they're going to be paid back for all their wicked deeds. But for the righteous, God's keeping a record of all we do for him. And he's going to reward us. And that's a wonderful thing that we're going to be judged according to our works. If we know Christ, we serve him. We love him. We, we uh, carry out works uh, in his name. But the wicked, they live for themselves in the flesh. And they're going to pay in judgment. But look at the word but there in verse 24. Here we go. It changes the mood. So really from verse 18 down through verse 23 was kind of addressed to this one portion of that church at Thyatira that was, was evil. There was some serious uh, sin going on there, physically perhaps, definitely spiritually, idolatry and so forth, and judgment was already coming on them. But I say uh, unto you, unto you I say, 
And out of the rest in Thyatira, this is the other group. It may have been a minority, but thank God they were there. Jesus says, as many as have not this doctrine. Now, that's an important little insight. He calls what had been going on, and he, and he had been judging and, and pronouncing judgment on for the last five verses, doctrine. So it had to be uh, mostly a spiritual, uh, doctrinal uh, corruption in that church. Not to say there wasn't any sexual sin or physical sins of the flesh. No doubt you'll find that any church that has wrong doctrine will also have wrong living. They go together. And so I'm sure there was some of that, but but the Lord puts it as, uh, thank God there were some of that church that did not have this doctrine, this way of living, this belief system that led to certain actions. That's what doctrine is. Doctrine is what you believe that leads you to live a certain way. And our doctrine is supposed to be biblical Christian doctrine, sound doctrine, as Paul referred to it several times in the book of Titus to that pastor, Titus. Now he says, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak. Wow, he's really making it clear that there were, thank God, some in that church that were not among that other group that that had known the depths of Satan. He must be describing them in comparison to the first group. And this group, uh, thank God, were doctrinally sound. They had not let the devil uh, deceive them and twist their thinking. And especially as they spoke, because he says, as they speak, not as you speak, but as they speak. So the Lord's putting his judgment primarily on their doctrine that they were speaking. Remember the teaching part in verse 20? This comes back to tell us that's exactly what he was condemning. They were teaching and influencing people by their words, by their authority in the church, this Jezebel or this group like that were like a Jezebel, leading people astray. And, and the Lord's commending now this new group. Thank God you're not like them. And I love how he ends verse 24. I will put upon you none other burden. Oh, isn't that great? I mean, the Lord's been really harsh on this first part of this church he's dealt with. Man, he has been. But he says, you know what? Uh, I don't want you to think you're in, in the same group. Uh, I'm going to bless you. I'm not going to put you under that that yoke, that burden. I'm not going to. I'm not going to condemn you and and pronounce judgment on you. You've been faithful. You haven't known the depths of Satan. You haven't went into this false doctrine. But that which you have already, uh, you have already. Hold fast till I come. This is a great little kind of an encouraging verse. Verse 25, very short verse. He says, "But that which ye have." Now the word "already" is added in italics. You can see in the King James that means it was not part of the actual Greek text. It's added for clarification, for grammatical English structure, for the, for smoothness and readability. And and most of these, uh, I would say, these italic words, well, all were neat, were in there for a reason. God's preserved them in there for a reason. Uh, but really, you could say the text just really says, "But that which ye have, hold fast till I come." That which ye have already. Already means what you're holding to. And that's the good things. But why do he say it the way he did? Because there's always some temptation and always a, a struggle to hold on what's right when you're being uh, pressed into and conformed by the wicked and even by people in your own church that, that may not be sound. And you're living in a world that's, that's wicked. We, we deal with that in, in church work today, don't we? 
Uh, we're being constantly uh, pressed by the world and, and, and even by people in the church who, who may not be uh, devoted and committed as they should. And, and there's always temptation, well, let's not be too, too strong on that idea or this practice or why do we need to do this or why do we need to teach that? Uh, maybe we would be more popular if we didn't. I think that's what he's telling him. Don't give up. Hold fast that which you should hold on to. Hold fast means firmly. Hold on to it firmly. And now look at the commendation or blessing he gives to them. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Boy, this is a great, great uh, reward. He's used that word overcoming a number of times. And I've told you it's so important. It's what a blessing it is to be called an overcomer. He that overcometh. Uh, you overcome the flesh and the world and the devil. You overcome those pressures to, to compromise, those pressures to change what you believe and, and how you live. You overcome that because you want to put Christ first. You're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, so you don't give up on things. That's always blessing these uh, believers at, at Thyatira. This may be a minority group, yes, but he's still giving them great encouragement. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end. Well, see, there's that continuation. There's that perseverance. That's, there's that longevity. We're not to give up. Keep his works to the end. He's watching those that keep his works. You know, I've, I've taught our people at our church this, and it's been one of my mottos. I want to finish well. I want my wife and I to finish well, my kids and grandkids. I want our church to finish well, no matter how long we're here, no matter long, how long each of us are at this place. I want to finish my work well. He says, you keep my works unto the end. Don't be a castaway. Don't be a, a, a statistic, a casualty. There's so many fall-off Christians, fall-away Christians, you can call them. People that used to be faithful, used to be in church. They're out of church now. They, they don't live for the Lord now. I don't know if it, they were really saved to begin with. It's not my judgment to make. I have some real suspicions that many of them weren't saved to start with, but Hey, all I know is he says he's going to bless those that overcome and keep his works to the end. Well, look what he's going to give them. To him will I give power over the nations. Wow. That's a wonderful thought. That's part of his reward during the millennium. The power of the nations means to rule and reign with him when he rules and reigns on earth. We'll get to that. We'll get to that great millennial kingdom as we talked about in our view of the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view, we believe Jesus is going to come and set up his kingdom for a thousand years. He'll reign literally from Jerusalem. And those faithful Christians, part of his churches that are doing his work, are going to reign with him. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. He just throws in a quote from Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. This is Christ, of course. But he, he includes it here because we're going to rule with him. Paul would say in 2 Timothy, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. And so he's putting this passage from Psalm 2. It's a messianic passage. It has to do with the Messiah's reign when he comes back, when Jesus comes the second time. But he includes it here to, to kind of bolster his, his point that uh, if you're faithful to me, you're going to reign with me. I'll give you power over the nations. Not your own power, the power I'll give you. It'll be a delegated power. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter Shall they be broken to shivers, to, to pieces? See, uh, word for pieces to small pieces. Even as I received of my father. See the delegation? The father delegated to the son the kingdom. And, and the son gives now to his people the kingdom. 
He said, fear not, little flock, it is the Father's good will to give you the kingdom in Luke 12, 32. And we're going to get the kingdom. We either love him and are serving him and are faithful to him. We're going to reign with him. And then I love this little short verse 28. And I will give him the morning star. Wow. Now that's a tough one to, to interpret. I'm not sure exactly what he means because literally he is. He's called at the end of the book of Revelation the, the bright and morning star, isn't he? Uh, in Revelation chapter 22, let me turn to it just for a moment and remind you that great uh, thought where Jesus says of him, of himself, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star, Twenty-two sixteen. So what does he mean by, I will give him the morning star? I just, I'd have to, I'd have to say it must mean that it just means we're going to have his kingdom with him. We're going to be with him. I'm going to give him myself. I'm going to make him a part of me. I'm going to give you who I am. I'm going to give you all that comes from being in Christ. Remember that great uh, little prepositional phrase, in Christ, that's used throughout the New Testament? Oh, I love it. I've preached on it before. It's a beautiful little little statement. There's so much in it. I'm, I'm hesitant to go too deep into this, but in Christ, we're in his protection. We're in his family. We're in his blessing and, and in his favor and in his grace and all these things. So I think when he says, I will give him the morning star, it's basically just saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make him a part of myself and he's going to be a part of my kingdom when I return. And of course, the Lord then finishes, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches, which is how he ends all uh, the uh, seven letters to these seven churches. Uh, and that's simply teaching all of us that we better listen to what he says. Because every church of these seven is represented in some way in our churches today. We can probably find elements of our church, my church, your church, in these seven churches. Now, as I said, before I close, we're almost done. But let me bring up, I do think there are some very amazing similarities to the church of Thyatira, to what I call the period of the Dark Ages from 500 to 1500 in church history. And this, this period known as the Dark Ages is one of the most horrifying, uh, brutal periods of time uh, that, that's ever uh, been known uh, to modern man or to, to mankind in general. And the reason being, and we must put the blame where it needs to be put. Now, I was raised Roman Catholic. I've said that on a number of the podcasts. I don't make any apologies about my uh, anti-Catholic uh, stand on things. I am not anti-Catholic people, please remember. I am anti-Catholic doctrine, anti-Catholic system. I do not believe that the Roman Catholic system is true Christianity at all because true Christianity is Bible Christianity. If you go out of the scriptures and you cannot base what you believe and how you live as a Christian upon the scriptures alone, they are the final rule of faith and practice, then you or whatever your system is cannot be truly called Christian. And so I do not believe Roman Catholicism is truly Christian. And I think this church at Thyatira, which is the longest section of any of these seven churches, also pictures the longest period of time in church history. Now, I'd have to go into a whole discussion of church history to, to back this up. And I have on other programs. I can't do it here. I will ask you and, and urge you to go back and listen to some previous podcasts on, on Baptist church history and Baptist church doctrine I did. Oh, I don't know how long ago. You'll have to look it up. But if you get uh, uh, the, the podcast or subscribe, you can go all the way back to when we started our podcast a year and a half ago or so. And you can listen to, to that section on history, which is very important. But I will just give you a couple of quick thoughts, uh, how I believe this system pictures 
uh, Roman Catholicism. First of all, the stress of the woman, Jezebel. You know, uh, Catholicism claims to be the true bride of Christ. They, they, the popes claim to be the vicar of Christ or his representative on earth. Is it, is it uh, a coincidence that the main sin that he deals with is their doctrine, and their doctrine is idolatrous? When you talk about Roman Catholicism uh, with all of its idol worship, worshiping Mary and the saints and, and worshiping the, the wafer and, and the wine as if it's the literal body and blood of Christ, which the Bible never teaches it is, it, it worships the Pope, it worships uh, the authority of the councils and so on, totally foreign to the Bible. Uh, we see this whole idea of spiritual adultery. Uh, we, we see this idea of her cast into a bed committing adultery. Uh, this is all, I think, in line with the Roman Catholic Church through all its history. It really didn't start till about five or 600 A.D. It's not the original church. The true churches of Christ were not Catholic churches. You can learn that by simply seeing what the New Testament book of Acts and the epistles teach. They don't teach any of the sacraments that the Roman Catholic system uh, began to believe, like papal infallibility and, and the perpetual virginity of Mary and, and the actual you know, transubstantiation idea that the wafer and the, and the wine that they use literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. This is all a corruption. This was all added later. It's not in the text. And so some of these things that he refers to, remember the emphasis on works I told you about, notwithstanding, he says, uh, and the last to be more than the first. Uh, Catholicism is all about religious works. They have seven, seven sacraments that poor Catholic people are, are being duped into thinking if they'll just keep those seven sacraments as faithful as they can, that, that maybe they'll get into heaven. And if they don't, they can at least go to purgatory and they can be prayed out of purgatory or enough masses be, can be conducted or candles lit or whatever other uh, totally man-made uh, ideas uh, are added there. There is no purgatory. It's not taught in the Bible. There's only heaven and hell. And so what I'm saying is this church at Thyatira, the longest section in this uh, section of the seven churches, pictures, I think, the longest period of time when Catholicism dominated the earth. And this is not something I'm making up. You can check out the history. Don't take my word for it. Read any good church history, any, any good secular history. will even show you the atrocities of the Crusades and you know, the Inquisitions and, and, and how Catholic domination over the states in Europe, especially in the Roman Empire, though it collapsed technically, the western section of the Roman Empire uh, toppled in 476 A.D., but it really didn't die because then the popes ruling like tyrants from Rome literally took over that vacuum. And they would crush uh, anyone that was against them. They killed thousands, if not millions. I believe the number's in the millions, personally. I think there's enough documentation to back that up. They killed Muslims. They killed Jews. And, of course, they killed true Christians the most. As a Baptist, one of the reasons I am a Baptist is that I know our Baptist history went back through the groups called the Waldensians, and the Albigensians, and the Paulicians. They were called Anabaptists. Which one? Which means those who rebaptized, and you study the bloody history of our our people being killed by the thousands and millions uh, because of this uh, horrible system called Roman Catholicism. I think it's pictured at least by this Thyatira Church Age period. Well, I'll leave it there. I can't get into more history with this. Go back and listen to some of the previous podcasts. Next week, Lord willing, uh, we'll bring up now the. The uh, fifth church, we'll get into chapter three and we'll cover the church at Sardis. 
Well, let me remind you of our motto that we always end with, conviction for truth, compassion for people. God bless you.